And Father, what we want to do is to come before you and give thanks to you for who you are. You're the sovereign God, and you have been so good to us. The most significant thing is that you've given Jesus Christ to die on the cross, save us from our sins. You've given us a way of redemption. It's in Christ and Christ alone. You revealed yourself as the God of Most High. We can't put anything in your place, nor can we put anyone in your place. You and you alone are most high. And so, Father, with that in mind, it gives us encouragement that it's because you were the God most high that you and you alone were able to raise the second member of the Trinity uh, from the grave. Only you can do that. So no matter what it is that anybody's facing in any of these services or in the live stream this morning, I pray that you're going to speak to hearts and minister points of need. Warm these hearts. Engage these minds. Shape these wills. So again now, Father, we've come here to see Jesus. Him only. Praying these things again now in Jesus' name. Amen. You and I are on a tour of New England, and in particular spent time in Massachusetts. I want to take you to the monument that appears on the screen. It's a monument that describes in particular the pilgrims. It used to be called the Pilgrim Monument. It's now known as the National Monument of the Forefathers and it commemorates the arrival of the pilgrims in 1620 and the signing of the Mayflower Compact. There's a story behind that. It was a cold day in December, December of 1620, and the people represented by that monument, the largest granite monument in the world, we are told, they were tired, weather-beaten, when they first stepped on the shores of what we know as Massachusetts. Behind them lay this vast ocean, the Atlantic, and their native England. Before them, there's this wilderness filled with danger. Why does this small band of people leave behind all that's familiar to them? Well, when King James assumed the throne of England in 1603, he was determined to be able to exert his authority over the government, but also over the Church of England. And he opposed those that wanted to reform the Church of England by bringing biblical teaching back to it. And so in a fit of rage, a fit of rage at these people, King James made this vow, quote, I shall make them conform. I'll, I will hurry them out of the land or else do worse. Well, one group, which were known as the separatists, we know them to be the Puritans, a group, the pilgrims. They believe that only Jesus Christ is the head of the church. And so they began to resist his authority over the Church of England. There was one group of people in a small farming town known as Scrooby. 
And these people realized that they could no longer worship the Lord in freedom as they desired. And so they resolved to move as a group, as a congregation, to Holland. King James wasn't happy about that, as you and I know. For the next 12 years, what these people did is they spent time in Holland so that they would send evangelistic tracts back to their native England, sharing the good news of Jesus Christ, who came to die for our sins. Well, though they were in Holland, the king of England began to harass them, he and his troops. And, of course, the pamphlets were being confiscated. They knew they made the right decision, and they based that decision upon Proverbs chapter 22, verse 3. The prudent sees danger and hides himself, but the simple go on and suffer for it. And so they decided after X number of years of Holland, it was time to return. But they make their way and meet up with others who will in turn gather together and begin the voyage of what's known as the Mayflower. And for two months, two months, we find themselves, in essence, out on the seas. They're being harassed. They're being challenged, but they need to be able to find a new beginning. They make their way towards the shorelines of Massachusetts. They set up a covenant known as the Mayflower Compact, a covenant, a compact that was used in helping to develop the Constitution that we know it for today. <coughs> and William Bradford, the governor of that little colony, wrote a valuable history of the Plymouth Plantation. God is sovereign, and he will take the things that seem to be going wrong and turn it into something right. You know that King James, that he was the water force that harassed the people, and they made their way from England to America? You might have a King James version of a Bible at home. Because God used that king who harassed these people as a means by which the gospel will go out even further through what was then known as an authorized version of the scriptures. Here is a God who is in charge, and that monument that you and I would find if we're walking the shorelines of Massachusetts is a testimony to that. Now, when you and I are looking at this passage of Scripture, it was a passage of Scripture that was highly significant to the governor of that colony at that time, William Bradford. He steeped himself in these verses. We're going to do the same. So what I want to do is to look very carefully at what's here in these 15 verses and to draw out three significant factors that's involved in giving thanks to God that's found here. And the first is found in verse 1 down through verse 4, we're going to phrase it like this as transition, that as you and I, as we consider our sovereign God, we're going to give thanks to him this week and all weeks for, first of all, the nature of his, his works. Notice how this begins. It is good. It is good to give thanks to the Lord. Now, I want you to track with me that little word, T-O, it continues to appear here. What God is doing for you and me is that he is setting up your intent. 
the intentions that you ought to have in relationship to God and life. There are three significant little TOs I want to draw out here at the beginning. It is good, number one, to give thanks to the Lord. Even when, even when things are not necessarily ideal, you're giving thanks to the Lord. You're setting your attitude in proper context. Now, when these pilgrims were wearied from their voyage and they're looking out over the wilderness and they're wondering how we're going to make this work, they are looking upward rather than merely outward. And so that monument is meant to extend skyward as a statement to the fact that that is where, that was where their attention was focused. Likewise, you and me. Even in the challenges of life, there's got to be something of a skyward approach to the challenges that we're experiencing. You're looking upward, and so you're giving thanks to God, even in less than ideal circumstances, and notice that it is giving thanks to the Lord, capitalized. That's the relational name for God. That's the covenantal name for God. It's the God who breaks in and sends his son Jesus to die for you. To die for me, your first two O. An intent that you have here is the way you're going to approach life. But a second T.O., to sing praises to your name, O Most High. What I want you to see now is the way in which this psalmist is pulling together various names of God to grab your attention that this is the God that you're to give thanks to this week. On one hand, Yahweh. Capital L-O-R-D, a relational name for God we start with. But now another name, Elion, this is the God most high. And now you see that God is not only personal, but God furthermore is sovereign over. He is with you, but he is over you simultaneously. This is the God that you give praise to. And then thirdly, to declare your steadfast love. Now here's the, here's the thing. Notice that there's, to be, there's something to be done in the morning and there is something to be done in the evening. Now, what the psalmist wants you and me to do is he wants us to bookend our days. He starts with the morning hours. In the morning hours, what he wants you and me to do is to declare your, speaking of God's, steadfast love. It's a loyal love. Hebrew word, hesed. Declare your steadfast love in the morning. You're setting your day right at the onset. Before you even develop your news, or your, your list of things to do, or watch the morning news, or capture it on, your, on whatever your website, your favorite website is, with that cup of coffee in hand, perhaps. You want it black, you know. Iraqi oil black. Declare God's steadfast love in the morning. And then here's your other bookend, and your faithfulness by night. You're going to begin your day well. You're going to end your day well, no matter what your mood is, no matter what your circumstances are, no matter the people you're going to meet or the projects you're going to have to take on. You've got a starting point, and you've got an ending point. You do this, and what you are doing is you are bookending your life. 
And this becomes a daily discipline to declare your steadfast love in the morning and your faithfulness by night. And you say, Gary, I need a little music to go along with that. Well, the psalmist was already thinking of you. Because now check out verse 3, and he's got a, a variety here of options that are awaiting you to the music of the lute, for example. And furthermore, the harp. And furthermore, the melody of the lyre. Now, the lute was a ten-stringed instrument. And the lyre, well, that was the instrument that David used to minister to Saul when Saul was in a despondent, agitated state. And when you find that maybe it's extended family members or other people that are in a despondent state, this is one means, furthermore, to help them to re-engage with what matters most, with what who matters most, and to begin to lift their eyes above their circumstances to the God who is in control of our circumstances, even when our circumstances don't look ideal. It was the Teresa Boyle. She was a trawler from Scotland, had been sunk by a Nazi bomber in the North Sea. And the crew were able to get away in their lifeboat only a small boat, and the historian tells us for hours they rowed about hoping someone would see them. He writes it was terribly cold and they had not much food with them. Forty hours went past and no one had sighted their boat. And as the weary hours dragged on, one after another of them uh, became exhausted and could not help with the rowing anymore. And just then, keen eye of a pilot on patrol spotted them. Although their boat was being buffeted by the heavy seas, the writer tells us. And by this time, this sight of the men, they were all lying on the floorboard, too weak to row. You ever been there? Just too weak to keep on keeping on. And how do you give thanks when you are too weak to keep on keeping on? Well, one of them lifted his hand just slightly and waved anxiously at the pilot. Plane flies low. Men realized they're seen. But then off went the plane. Gone. Why? In search of help. Found two minesweepers some 15 miles away. Asked them by lamp signals to follow it. By firing colored lights, the pilot guided the minesweeper to the open boat, circled round until the men and the entire crew of the sunken trawler were taken on board, and then the writer uses one word to describe the scenario. Saved. And then it flew off. And after going two miles... A signal lamp from one rescue ship called the plane back. Anything wrong, signaled the pilot. No, the reply flickered. These men we picked up just wanted to say thank you. Thank you for saving us. And with this message, off flew the plane keep on carrying responsibilities, the duty of patrol.
and I thought of your good. Sometimes you and I feel like we're just lost at sea. One speck of a small boat in the midst of the waves that continue to buffet. And then you're spotted. You might be exhausted, but you're spotted. Maybe at times it's you're almost too weary to lift up your arm to signal where you are, but you're spotted. The question is, how do you respond? Save. Thank you. Thank you for saving us. This is the imagery here that's emerging out of these opening verses. Three statements of intent. To give thanks to the Lord, number one, to sing praises to your name, almost high, number two, to declare your steadfast love. But now two bookends. One for the morning, to declare your steadfast love in the morning, but for the evening, your faithfulness. Use various options, various styles of music. Expand your repertoire, your tastes. This situation, the lute, the harp, the melody of the lyre. But now what does he do at this point? He pulls together the nature of God in verses 1 through 3 through various ways of describing God. L-O-R-D on one hand and, and El-Yan from the Hebrew, the other hand, the most high. And then he zeroes in and says in verse 4, For you, O Lord, he's back to the relational name which you need. And if you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you've got a relational God on your hands. For you, O Lord, have made me glad by your work. Now the challenge is, in the workplace, so many people are trying to find happiness based upon their work. But the believer knows that where you will find the ultimate sense of true joy is found in God's work. And so you're praising God, and you're praising him as you move from the singular to the plural. Made me glad by your work, at the works of your hands, and then the musical composition kicks back in. I sing for joy. Even when you might not feel like singing, you sing for joy. And what William Bradford tells us regarding that weariness that kicked in upon their arrival upon the shorelines of Massachusetts is that their, their lives were full of praise and their lips were offering thanksgiving to God who so wondrously sustains us and inspired so many more, in fact, to come. Fascinating. There's where you begin. As you and I, as we're considering this week, our sovereign God, circumstances aren't sovereign, God is. Health not sovereign, God is. Works not sovereign, God is. You give thanks to him, first of all, for the nature of his works, but then you're ready for the second stanza because as you and I, as we consider our sovereign God, we give thanks to God, second of all, for the assurance of his virtues, or rather of his victories. Notice how this unfolds. How great are your works, O Lord. And then something significant here. I want you to think about the mind of God. His thoughts are infinite. His thoughts are eternal. 
His thoughts are not our thoughts. Your thoughts are very deep, he writes. Think the Apostle Paul was thinking of that? He penned these words, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given him a gift that he might be repaid? But now the psalmist is thinking about the ways of God and the thoughts of God and how all this fits together. And as you and I fit that together, go back for a second to a plaque that appears on a church building in Holland. For in Holland, we find at St. Peter's Church, Leiden, Holland, a statement regarding the memory of the Mayflower pilgrims who once worshipped there. Now, when you are building monuments of gratitude to God, you look at your starting point, you look at your ending point. You're thinking about how this began, you're thinking about how we got through it, you're thinking about how we, so to speak, came up on land, came ashore, and you're praising God for the process and for the way all this unfolds. That's the idea here, as you go back to the statement that's found here in Psalm 92, how great are your works, O Lord. Your thoughts are very deep. Who would have ever thought that you would pull this off? But then I thought the same thing when I read this story about Squanto. Squanto. Now, Squanto was an Indian who lived in the region that we know today as Massachusetts. Back to the passage that appears on the screen. And as you're pondering this, Squanto was brought up, you see, by a man who loved Jesus as Lord and Savior. Squanto had been kidnapped, taken to England, and then was working in the stables of a man named John Slaney. And Slaney recognized Squanto's desire to return home. So he promised to put Squanto on the first vessel bound for America. Now know your dates. 1619. Ten years after Squanto was first kidnapped, a ship was found for him. After a decade of exile, he's on his way home. But when he arrived in Massachusetts, more heartbreak, an epidemic wiped out Squanto's entire village. What's going through his mind? And what's on God's mind? And why does God allow him to return home against all odds only to find that his loved ones have, have, have passed away? Here's our answer. One year later, a shipload of English families known as the Pilgrims arrive. Settle on the very land once occupied by Squanto's people. Squanto goes out to meet them. They're startled. He greets them in perfect English. They share with him the gospel. He informs them he knows the Savior. 
According to the diary of Pilgrim Governor William Bradford, Squanto became, quote, a special instrument sent of God for our good. He showed us how to plant our corn, where to take fish, how to procure other commodities. It was also a pilot to us, taking us to unknown places. And he never left us until he died. And when Squanto lay dying of fever, Bradford wrote that their Indian friend, quote, desired that the governor pray for him as he prepared to go to meet his Lord in heaven. And then Squanto bequeathed his possessions to the pilgrims as remembrances of his love. And I've thought about that. And there's a Squanto, and he is in England, and he's learning English, and he's feeling so far removed from home. And then he finds out about this God who's the God of grace, and is wondering, where's grace in this situation? But then God secures the ship. He comes back only to find that his family now has died. What's the purpose in this? And what is the mind of God pondering with regard to this? But then a year later, pilgrims arrive on the scene. He greets them with perfect English, and they befriend him. He befriends them, and the rest is history. And we see how all this begins to connect together, how all things work together for the good to them that love God and are called according to this purpose, even though not everything feels good or looks good. You see how things converge? Here's the mind of God. How great are your works, O Lord. Your thoughts are very deep. So you're looking at your circumstances right now. You're looking at the challenges right now and the extremes of life right now. And you're wondering, what are you thinking, God? What are you planning, God? But after a 1619 comes a 1620. God's timing is perfect. So what do you do? Well, there are two schools of thought. Here's one school. Starting, you see, with verse 6. The stupid man cannot know. The Hebrew word for stupid here carries with the idea of one who is brutish by nature, one who simply operates on the basis of instincts but doesn't take into account time as it relates to eternity. The fool cannot understand this. And though the wicked sprout like grass and call all evil doers and all evil doers flourish, they're doomed to destruction forever. But now but now grace kicks in. Your thanksgiving moment arrives. The key verse of this section stands out. But you, O Lord, and you see it's O Lord capitalized. This is your relational name for God. He's not distant from you. He's involved with you. But you, O Lord, are on high forever. Now, this is a grouping, Psalm 92 through Psalm 100, that emphasizes that God is supreme and sovereign over all. That's your key verse. So he's able to say, evidently, there's a tremendous opposition that the Israelites are experiencing for not once, twice. He calls upon God to behold. For behold your enemies, O Lord. For behold your enemies shall perish, all evildoers shall be scattered. And there's his certainty. 
So when life seems extreme and life seems so oppositional, what you're able to do in the midst of the challenges of life at this point is that you're considering your sovereign God, not considering your circumstances to be sovereign. And in the process, you're giving thanks, number one, for the nature of his works, as you see it in one through four, and it's plural. Think about all the various things God's doing. And number two, the assurance of his victories, verses five through nine, of course, the ultimate one, where three days later, Jesus Christ is raised from the dead. And you do that, and now you're infusing new meaning into the day of thanksgiving as you make your way now to the third of the three factors that as you and I consider our sovereign God, we give thanks to him for, thirdly, the flourishing of his people. And I'm choosing that word because the word flourishing here is the word that's used here in this text. Watch how it unfolds. But you have exalted my horn like that of the wild ox. You have poured over me fresh oil. My eyes have seen the downfall of my enemies. My ears have heard the doom of my evil assailants. In other words, he's looking to the future and already views it as past tense. Good is done. God is sovereign, therefore it's being addressed. Might not be able to see it happen in, my, in, my, in this week that I find myself in, but it's good is done. God's sovereign. They're not. So what does he do? Notice he picks up on the word flourish. He contrasts it with verse 7. It appears as though all evildoers flourish in verse 7. But in verse 12, we're told the righteous flourish. How? Like the palm tree and grow like a cedar in Lebanon. And when I walked around in Israel, what struck me about these kinds of trees is they're tall, statuesque. There's a strength and majesty about them. But he goes on at this point to say that they are planted in the house of the Lord. In other words, he's saying God's people are positioned in that relational connectedness with God. Now, when your God is viewed as both sovereign on one hand, over life, personal on the other hand, involved with your life, then you feel like you can flourish. And even though you feel like you're withering today, you've got the certainty that you can flourish in the midst of this because of the proximity of God involved in your life day in, day out, because you're bookending your, your days. You're starting with God. You're ending with God. You've got a new view on life. You've got a new view of God. So what happens? You flourish. They flourish in the courts of our God. They bear fruit in old age. They're ever full of sap and green. And here's what you do now. You draw a line from verse 15 back to verse 2. Because how does verse 2, which began the psalm, read? You're to declare your steadfast love in the morning, your faithfulness by night. Verse 15, to declare that the Lord is upright. So you begin and you end and you're bookending again, but you're making a statement this week to those who might not know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior that the Lord is relational. It's a capital L-O-R-D. He's upright. He's my rock. He's better than Plymouth Rock. There is no unrighteousness in him. And when I saw that and I pondered that, 
my mind went back to another historical analogy of this because a rare Bible has just been found in the past few years from the Battle of Bunker Hill. 1777-1775 battle, a King James Bible. Historian tells us that this Bible is one of only two known to exist from the Battle of Bunker Hill. An authentic witness to one of the most iconic moments of the Revolutionary War. It's now on display in New England. At Bunker Hill, more than 100 American troops were killed. And in that battle on June 17th of 1775, there was a man. There was a man whose name is Francis Merrifield, who survived that heavy fighting and carried that Bible out of the battle. And Merrifield wrote extensively on the front and back covers of the Bible, thanking God for his survival. And on the reverse of the New Testament page, he wrote, quote, Cambridge, June 17, 1775. I desire to bless my God for his kindness in delivering me and sparing me in the late battle fought on Bunkers Hill. I desire to devote to declaring that he has spared my life and bring glory to his name in witness my hand, Francis Merrifield, and below the inscription, below the inscription, he writes Psalm 92. You tie that together, and no matter what battle you're fighting in life right now, give thanks to God. Bookend it day and night, day after day, night after night. And watch how this changes your life. Let's stand together. Thanking you now, Father, for being our God. The king that harassed the pilgrims to leave the country was the king, who, the King James Version Bible. It's named after the very version that was used by Maryfield out on Bunker Hill. We see life coming full circle. And we see that the sovereign God is at work pulling things together in ways that we can't imagine, like a, a squanto take, being taken to England, learning English, coming back to America, and then greeting pilgrims. And the rest is history. So, Father, I pray that we can build monuments of grace in the coming days that allow other people to think seriously about who you are, seriously about what you do, that even when life is hard in family or at work or with health, you're God and you are worthy to be praised. And for this, we give you all the praise. In Jesus' name.